money makes the world go round, so they say, but both are changing rapidly. Open banking, AI, digital wallets and cryptocurrencies are among the technological changes reshaping the financial landscape. While bringing incredible benefits, it's made grasping the concept of money far more slippery and left consumers and retailers with many questions. Welcome to Business Reporters' Future of Payments campaign. I'm Georgie Frost. In this four-part podcast series, we're talking to James Neville, the CEO and founder of Citizen, one of the first companies licensed to provide payments and identity services using open banking. In this episode, we'll be discussing identity theft and what retailers can do to mitigate its threat. Identity theft is big business. Throughout history, where there's money to be made, scammers can be found. The problem is no different in the digital age of the dark web, money laundering and online scams. It's just the scale that's different. As regulators try to play catch up, fintech developers are expected to develop robust measures to check the identity of those who pay or receive money. But are we overstating the danger? Do identity checks and protection simply serve to raise the price of alternative payment methods and increase the administrative burden? James, welcome back. Firstly, let's go a little bit back to basics. In this context, what do we mean by identity? It's a very short question that has a terribly long answer, but identity is fundamentally who and what you are uh, as an individual or as another actor within a state, whether that be a business entity or a government. And there's, there's several dimensions to that. So there's who you are by birth. So your name, your date of birth, your family, who you're born to, your family tree. And then there's your social identity, who your friends are, how you behave with your friends, how you position yourselves. That's a kind of personal identity. Everyone forgets that they always have a different business identity. So, you know, their their previous kind of history, their role history, their skills and so forth. And of course, an online identity. And all of these are are kind of subsets of, of the same person and of course as soon as you get into the digital realm online identities can be anything from kind of real to all the way to kind of anonymous and and, and pseudo anonymous in in the middle everything that you do in in the digital world has a back history but that effectively ties you to um, your digital imprint but not necessarily to your kind of birth or your formal identity imprint it's quite interesting how that works in a in a corporate context of course you know there's been talks of corporate personhood you know throughout the 80s and and the 90s are you know corporates have the the same legal right as individuals which uh, we know they're not individuals they're not living breathing human entities but an entity fundamentally boils down to a set of kind of data points uh, and a digital paper trail that, that precede you or the entity so how can retailers and financial institutions identify a person or indeed an organization what are some of the most efficient methods in which to do that i mean the, the the standard way is you know what you would call kyc you know your customer or on an individual or, or know your business kyb on a business there are state public records of course so there's kind of corporate registries companies house in the uk for a business there's the kind of register of, of births and deaths and deaths is quite important as well in in, in the world of identity theft and, and frauds but the common instruments around all of that are the documents that these registrars produce. And that's everything from your um, birth certificate to your passport to your driving license. And the most common, of course, are uploading a driving license, uploading a passport to define who you are. But effectively, that's just a scan. It's a, a book that was issued to you with all the relevant kind of watermarking and holographic kind of fraud prevention controls of it. But you're uploading a copy of that that's then 
scanned by the business or the retailer to assure that James is James of one long street, but I could have a copy of somebody else's passport. It could equally be a fake. So people tend to, in higher risk scenarios, triangulate that. So they will look at your history as a director, perhaps your name on an electoral roll. Does that address tie together beyond there? Does that address date of birth and name kind of match on, on various credit reference agencies? Is James on the list of sanctions? Is he, you know, is he on the kind of terror watch list? And it goes deeper and deeper and deeper, but it tends to start with those first pieces of, of data. Efficiency, it takes a long time to look through all of these aspects of data. So sometimes you'll go deep and sometimes in certain scenarios you'll go shallow. I mean, a, a retailer in e-commerce only needs to really know where your address is. If your card processes and you, you make the payment, Generally, they will they will ship the the goods anywhere, and then you have drop shipping fraud for higher value, et cetera, et cetera. In an e money business like ours, we really want to know all of the individuals behind the business itself and their reputation, and whether they are on various watch lists because our licensing and, and our reputation is on the line as well. I asked about what is identity, but then I want to ask also what is identity theft? Then what are the main causes of it? So loss of loss of identity is typically from larger businesses that collect data on you. And we, we've seen it without wanting to, to name lots of names. We saw it with a couple of big telcos. One of them lost, I think, at one point, 80 percent of the UK's personal data. We had that from a, a large credit reference agency and that was settled in, in the US. But the UK was was drawn into that with, I think, 20 million people in the UK losing everything from their name, address, date of birth, all the stuff that would have been on an electoral roll and perhaps accompanying document numbers. So that passport number, that driving license number, all those things that could then be used to kind of play back and attack for an onboarding process somewhere else. And what typically happens is that data gets hacked, it gets released on, on kind of raiding forums, people buy it, trade it, share it. That information, once it's out in the public domain, I mean, I think you can safely say that most people's personal data is out there somewhere in some hacked database by now. So, you know, we've almost failed at the point of, of, of identity theft already. But then when you go a bit deeper into documents and bank account numbers and credit cards and the like, that's all tradable, as you, you noted in the opening to this. They're all traded on the dark web. There was a couple of prominent sites that popped up and disappeared over the years um, when I was working in payments we used to frequent these forums to see whether credit cards had been hacked and had gone through our systems before they are very sophisticated you can search by address by bank by type of cards by date of issue so you want a fresh card that's come out of you know been hacked in in the last two weeks from Barclays Bank in in the UK you can find those very very easily and quite often they come with accompanying documents so a driver's license or passport or just the numbers and the kind of state identity that sits behind that, your birth identity. It's quite growing. Yes, indeed. You paint a very bleak picture there. I mean, if the cat is out the bag, as it were, is there anything we can do to put it back? Yeah, I think there is. I, look, the, the kind of people that frequent those forums, they're you know, cyber criminals by nature. So, you know, they're very focused on whether it's trying to attain access to to something that that you have or it, it's definitely money orientated at the best of times but most of the time you're trying to protect 
what you have from kind of casual actors, I guess. You don't want to leave this stuff just, just lying around. There's better ways to do things, and certainly businesses could do a lot better, but so could consumers as well. You know, we, we've talked about the responsibility of protecting identity before. Businesses need to get better about data protection quite clearly. PR, How? Well, GDPR was set up to try and tackle that. There's been several instances of just kind of lapsadaisical behavior. I mean, the, the ones I just talked to in, in telco was uh, they left the front door open and they, if I remember rightly, they didn't change default passwords on various admin servers. So that's just a classic cybersecurity fail. We've had other instances of insurers leaving hard drives lying around with all the consumer data on them. And that's just, that's simple. It's the same as, you know, having a, everybody's passports in your pocket and then just leaving them somewhere. Businesses have got to get better about that. And, and now we've got, GDPR and the equivalent, hopefully, in, in the UK of, of our kind of UK Data Protection Act, there are fines and penalties for not protecting data correctly. And I think that's definitely pushed um, businesses in the right direction. But you know, consumers have got have got responsibility in this as well. Choosing poor passwords is obviously the, the worst one. And, and we joke all the time about how bad passwords can be, but then also on the other side, how businesses enforce crazily complex password rules on you that you will never ever remember and then you know you're then forced to have a process around how do i store that password you know people in cybersecurity tend to use password managers but you know casual kind of you know, mum at home or dad at home you know it's another thing that they have to do and and, and until you know they fall foul of identity theft or, or, or something bad happens and they, they casually don't really think about these things they just think of it as a barrier to accessing services so that's one i mean people share data all the time you know you share accounts with family and friends it goes a little bit deeper in some of the industries that, that we serve where people actually actively share and rent accounts now some of the problems that we we try to fix is you can mandate somebody goes through a full kyc process but then if they give up access to that qualified account later on how do you um protect yourself against that and that's kind of some things that we've been thinking about as we build kind of legitimacy into verifiable money you've spoken there about the responsibility of businesses and of individuals do you think that we have too great an expectation on fintech developers and banks to protect us and perhaps that's some of the problem a bit of complacency on our on our behalf it's the case of fraud and friction. You know, when electronic money started, when people started to pay online, credit cards were just typed into a form and then that form was sent to somebody to process the card in a very kind of manual fashion. And of course, they, that data started getting siphoned, siphoned off because it could be seen by, by, by a lot of different parties that, that didn't need to see the data. Now, yeah, there's a responsibility, like I said, on, on businesses to better protect that kind of data. But the more casual people are about their identity, the more businesses need to provide secondary authentication, encryption, all those things that actually consumers really hate. So, you know, you know you hate when you make a purchase that you have to type a memorable word afterwards. That's typically the 3D secure process. You actually know that you probably dislike getting an SMS code and then typing that SMS. Now, all those things are there to protect people that typically, as an ass, don't, don't do very well with password security themselves so businesses are enforced to put kind of secondary protection around all those things but yeah everyone's got a collective responsibility for us you can't pass the blame onto businesses for having to protect you 100 you have to do your own part 
Now let's change perspective. We've discussed the identity of the individual, but we may have similar doubts about the authenticity of digital money itself. So banknotes have serial numbers, they have watermarks, but how can we make sure, for example, that cryptocurrency or digital money is actually authentic? It depends what you mean by authentic. So is it real money? Does it have value? And is it owned by that individual so there's there's a number of dimensions there around kind of value and around kind of ownership so everybody knows that the the kind of crypto industry is particularly volatile we've, we've seen a lot of changes in in the value of various assets over the course of this year and the last few years in fact but crypto is authentic by nature a bitcoin is a bitcoin it's cryptographically provable to be a bitcoin you know if you receive that into your wallet it's a bitcoin but did it come from georgie did it did it come from james who knows? It's broadly anonymous. And there's been a lot of businesses that started to do lots of on-chain analytics around wallets and kind of where the money has come from. So essentially the traceability of money from one digital wallet to, to another. If you can identify a party as owning one of those wallets, then great, you've tied a, a real person to it. Quite often you can't. You can just see the, the kind of ledger movements of the transaction but digital money is is very different it's not cryptographic money it's money on a an e-money account somewhere so on a provider like one of the the neobanks for example so you've moved money from one of those neobanks or you've moved money from some other electronic ledger there's lots of things that happened in recent years around confirmation of payee that happens in the in the banking world so you know that when you you go to your bank and you'll type you know, pay John Smith of this account number, sort code or, or IBAN, and it goes, it's a match. Great. So that that's one level of confirming electronic money, but it, it's not perfect. And with a lot of sources, then you can't match the identity behind that. But that's matching an identity to an account you already know. What if you're asking to receive money from somebody and you don't know their banking information up front? You're just receiving money. It could come from some other source. So, you know, here's a Here's a bank account to deposit a thousand pounds to. How do you know you know that that person's identity without going through that um, confirmation of pay process in advance? And that's where so businesses start to become exposed to AML breaches. Like, did that money come from James, the UK citizen, or did it come from somebody in you know Russia or China that's actually on a on a sanctions list as we stand? All of this is based on provider trust and the banking rails themselves. So where we're going as a business is starting to leverage all of the openness of banking to prove authenticity of that person before receiving funds from them. You know, cards are anonymous, probably crypto is anonymous, but banking is becoming less and less anonymous by the day. What more needs to be done then in this space going forward to mitigate, I don't think we're ever going to get rid of totally the risk of identity theft or inauthentic, if we can call it money and those sorts of issues. The more regulation, the more identity checks, protection that businesses, retailers have to do, surely would just increase cost, the administrative burden and make it unworkable for many. Yeah, perhaps. Between individuals entities and the governments and, and the regulators acting on, on their behalf, they, they everybody plays a part. I mean, before GDPR and, and data protection became a thing, you know, data is fundamentally oil and was being sold around everywhere to, to the highest or even lowest bidder. Regulators are the biggest changing factor in fintechs because they make us do certain things. We have 
a set of policies we need to adhere to that we agree with the regulator we're audited on that basis how do we keep how do we store data how do we transmit it um and that's become ever more sophisticated over the years but it is it's a bit of a cat and mouse game because a lot what you find is a lot of the clever people that uh would have worked you know at the national competent authorities like the the financial conduct authority in the uk and the equivalents across europe they go and take jobs in private industry and they they work as their you know head of compliance so you know there's always a bit of a, a kind of brain drain that goes into private industry from from government so you know kind of helping to fund that at a you know a high level at a government level and making that attractive whilst also making it easy to do business rather than being preventative i think that's you know that that's something that definitely still needs to be to be worked on we're finding the government is moving more towards a kind of lighter touch regulation on certain aspects of electronic money crypto is now being looked at more favorably you know in the past it was looked at um in a very dim light and i think you know you, you have to take all these things with a a relative pinch of salt the government has to recognize what's out there and try to provide adequate regulations for for entities to operate within the within the space what can consumers do everyone's got a personal responsibility for their own cybersecurity. other people can't do it for them business can do their best to protect you without kind of making it too difficult to pay to transact online but individuals need to step up as well james neville ceo and founder of citizen thank you so much thank you